I um, wasn't able to come out for the caroling. I had um, a cold and, and just wasn't feeling up to it. But I understand about 90 folks came out for that, plus lots of chili. So I wish I could have been there. Couldn't. Great having my daughter home with me, which reminds me that I haven't said a word about her in a sermon the whole time she's been gone. <laughs> so I will refrain today. Maybe next Sunday. We'll see. Well, we're in this, again, this, this very practical section of Romans, where after Paul has established, again, our need for Jesus, and that justification only comes through the reckoning of God on the basis of faith in Christ. And in that justification, we have been made right with God, we have peace with God, we are reconciled to Him. And then he talked about how the Christian life is to be lived in Romans 6, 7, and 8, where it's a presentation of ourselves over to Him that He never intended for us to live simply on the basis of the new nature or even on the basis of the Word of God, even though both are from God and, and are gifts from God. But we are to live from Christ, that we are not to live, live just simply trying to do our best um, according to the orientation of God's Word or the orientation of a new nature, but we live truly from Christ. That's why He's given His Spirit to us. And then that brings us over to, to chapter 12, where Paul says, listen, it all boils down to presenting our bodies to Him as living sacrifices, so that He can live and express His life through us. And that will manifest itself in thinking clearly about ourselves and the other members of the body of Christ. We will think humbly. We will, we will appreciate the gifts that God has given to every member of the body. We will love without hypocrisy and sincerity, abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. And it also will affect how we live in relation to our enemies. Because even as Christians, we have enemies. Sometimes those enemies are other Christians, sadly enough. But so now in this section, the last part of Romans is really um, pretty much all about how Christ would manifest himself through us in relationship with those who hate us, our enemies. I have some experience with this. And, um, and here he's going to say several times in different ways, do not curse, do not repay evil for evil to anyone, do not take your own revenge, do not be overcome by evil. It is not an option. And we've all heard the saying, revenge is sweet, but only for a time. Having grown up in a family with um, lots of brothers and lots of things that we would do to each other and lots of um, planning and scheming that went into retaliation, I am an expert. In fact, my dad used to say, Charlie doesn't get even, he gets ahead. <laughs> I had an older brother, four and a half years older than me, and we didn't get along real well. We shared the same room. It was a good day when my parents got rid of the double bed and gave us twin beds. Because up to that time, I wasn't allowed to breathe when we were sharing the same bed. Because <laughs> breathing moved the bed, and I would get hit for breathing. So we had separate beds, and things didn't go much better after that. And um, again, four and a half years older than me, five years ahead of me in school. Um, um, he might as well have just, just been another, you know, another family member, another, per another family, because we just didn't really have all that much of a relationship. And um, I, I, one of my earliest memories of him and the difficulty we had was coming back from grandparents' house on Easter, and we all had our Easter eggs. He didn't, of course. He was too old for Easter eggs. 
But I had my Easter egg basket, and I love my Easter eggs. And my big brother took one of my Easter eggs that I cherished, and he started eating it right there in the car. And so I was mad, but I'm too little to do anything to my brother. So I looked at all my other beloved Easter eggs, and there were two of them that were identical. So I thought, I can sacrifice one of these eggs. And so I took one of them randomly, the two that were identical, and slapped it across my brother's head as hard as I could. And of all the dozens of eggs that my grandmothers, both grandmothers and mother, had hard-boiled, that was the one they didn't (laughs) hard-boil. Who would have known? Egg yolk was all over his head, running down his face, splattered all over the car. We were all shocked. And I remember my dad just laughing and saying, got what you deserve. We got older and he got meaner. I remember just thinking, what can I do to him? And I remember watching him. He'd come home after work and just dive headfirst into his pillow every night. You know, not turn on the lights, not get undressed, anything. Just dive headfirst into his pillow and, and, and go to sleep. So I said, well, I know what I'm going to do. And I took his pillow away and I loaded up where his pillow should have been with Tonka tr- trucks. Metal trucks. And sure enough, that night, he just dove headfirst into all those trucks. Revenge is sweet. But, it only lasts for a moment, and we live in the bitterness. It doesn't take away the bitterness. And if somebody said, unforgiveness and bitterness is a poison that we drink hoping the other person will die. It's certainly not love. And again, in Christ, it is not an option. It's simply not an option. Now, I know there's a number of passages in Scripture that speak to how we are to respond. This is just one, Romans 12. Kelly read this morning, 1 Thessalonians 5.15, See that no one repays another with evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. 1 Peter 3.9, Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Matthew 5.44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on on the righteous and the unrighteous. But again, God is not glossing over the reality that there are people in this world who will hate us, absolutely loathe our existence. Sometimes it will be your own family members. And Jesus made reference to that. He says sometimes your enemies will be your own family members. They will hate you for the cause of Christ. Sometimes people hate us, and they don't even know why they hate us. But it is real. And, it's, and, it, and it's sometimes you just think that you could just touch it. It's so real. There are a number of the Psalms where David, he had his enemies, and he spoke about them. And I have these highlighted in my Bible, and, and at times they've been very dear to me. Psalm 55, verse 12. It is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. 
nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him, but it is you, a man my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. My enemy has become, was my friend. Then he says, his speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. In Psalm 56, verse 5, All day long they distort my words, and their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited to take my life. Psalm 57, My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. And he goes on all through these psalms. Psalm 69. He tells us that, he says in verse 6, Psalm 69, 6, May those who wait for thee not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek thee not be dishonored through me, O Lord God of hosts, because for thy sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. It was my brothers that hate me even. Deliver me, verse 14, from the mire, and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. In verse 20, reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. We all have a tremendous sense of justice. And it's not unreasonable to hate the wrong that takes place. And when the hatred that is directed toward us, we feel is misplaced, it's not unreasonable to fret over it, to be anxious about it, and to be preoccupied with it. It is the common lot of humanity. Because we know it is an injustice, and we want justice to be done. God is a just God. And it grieves God when there is injustice. And it will grieve us as well. But he doesn't want us to retaliate, nor would he have us even to obsess on it. And David speaks about obsessive thoughts, really. And I wake up in the morning, and this is what I think of. And I can identify. And when I have had an ongoing troubled relationship, and, and when there has been wrong, and there's been slander, and injustice, I am thinking about it when I go to bed at night. I'm thinking about it when I wake up. I'm I'm thinking about it as I take a shower. It seems like every thought is about that. It so easily goes there. And yet the scripture says, take every thought captive through the obedience of Christ. And I've come to realize from that verse that Jesus says, the truth shall set you free. And that if my thoughts are captivated by the wrong that has been done to me, then there must be a lie somewhere in what I'm believing. Because the truth will set me free. And maybe the lie is that I don't deserve this because it's an injustice. Whereas the truth is, I will never get what I deserve. I deserve hell. And whatever this person's doing to me, however wrong it is, it is far short of what I truly deserve. Sometimes maybe my thought is that God doesn't even care. God's not going to do anything about this. I'm just going to have to live with this all my life. And yet God is a God of justice. And he cares for us. 
And there is nothing that he allows to come into our life that he doesn't mean it for good. Psalm 37 has been very dear to me in this respect. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. So don't focus on getting even. Don't even focus on this person that hates you, this evildoer. But dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Trust in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. And He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your judgment as the noonday. You don't have to vindicate yourself. You don't have to prove yourself. You can be silent and focus on the Lord. God will take care of it. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. We have a... A man I've mentioned before that lives near his hill, and he just doesn't like Christians a whole lot. That's just the sad truth of it. He called up our office a while back, not that long ago, and, and couldn't say in one message everything he wanted to say. So he had to hang up and call back again. And so we have two messages on our, on our answering machine with this guy using profanity and slandering us and accusing us of all kinds of stuff. And he just lives just almost adjacent to our property. And then I happened to bump into him. Brian was with me. I'm in a little car trouble. And so he stops and gets out of his car and walks up and wants to go at me again. And he's cussing and swearing and little Josh is there and stuff. And, just, and, it, and, we just, and it's just, there's no end to it. And I can get so worked up about it. And I was worked up that day. But I told him, I said, you know, for all that you're saying about us and my Christian testimony and stuff, because nobody knows better how a Christian should behave than somebody who's not a Christian. And, uh, and I said, I have never cussed at you. I have never lied to you. I have never raised my voice with you. We have been nothing but polite to you. And this is the response that we get from you. And it can just eat me up. And I think, God is my defender. He truly is. And I think in terms of that one man, how several different times I've seen other people intervene. And they have put him in his place. And I haven't had to. In the times, again, where I, where I have taken God's grace, and God's grace is always there, where I have taken up his grace by faith to be silent and not say anything, that I have seen God deliver. And so many times we don't see him deliver because we don't do as his word says and just keep silent. But we seek our revenge. We retaliate. We curse. We respond with evil for evil. We don't overcome the evil. We get overcome by the evil. If this passage is saying anything, it's telling us retaliation and revenge are absolutely forbidden to the followers of Jesus. He himself never hit back in either word or deed. Retaliation and revenge 
are absolutely forbidden to the followers of Jesus. There are the negatives. Do not, do not, do not. But there are four positives in this passage as well. Back to Romans 12, 14. Bless, bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. And then he'll say, do right. Insofar as it is possible, live at peace. Leave room for the wrath of God and overcome evil with good. Four positives that counteract the four negatives. Now, this is very important because he's not simply saying refrain from retaliation. Don't seek your own revenge. But he's saying something positive as well. And this is what marks out Christianity as being utterly different and what means that it takes God to do this. Now, I, on occasion, will listen to the talk radio host and Rush Limbaugh being one. And he, on occasion, will quote scripture. And it wasn't very long ago he was talking about um, the code of Hammurabi and that the golden rule of Matthew chapter 7, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, didn't come, originate with Jesus, but originated in the code of Hammurabi. He could not be more mistaken. The code of Hammurabi, to what I can tell, and I haven't done a lot of research on it, but I spent some over the weekend, um, doesn't even mention this issue of the golden rule. A number of other ethical um, um, sources do. Confucius, for example, um, ancient Greek philosophers, the Stoics, they all had some version of this. But listen to them. Confucius taught, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. Another Greek king wrote, do not do to others the things which make you angry when you experience them at the hands of other people. A Greek philosopher wrote, what you avoid suffering yourself, do not afflict on others. And the Stoics promoted the principle, what you do not want to be done to you, do not do to anyone else. And if you notice, with every one of those things, it is only negative. Don't do to others what you don't want done yourself. That is not what Jesus said. Jesus said, do to others what you want done for yourself. So he turns it from a negative to a positive. The best that men can come up with is the negative. Don't retaliate. Don't do to others what you don't want done to you. Jesus turns around to a positive. Bless when you're being cursed. He says, do good and overcome evil with good. That is utterly distinct from every other religion. And it's impossible for us. It has to be God to do this. Because everything in us wants revenge. Even Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who went to prison for trying to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And here's a man who lived in a time of dilemma. World War II, you've got a madman who is slaughtering millions of people all across Europe because he doesn't like their race. And there's a pastor with a few others who stand up and say, it's got to stop. 
And Bonhoeffer actively schemed for the assassination of Adolf Hitler. And he ended up in a prisoner of war camp and died at the hands of the Nazis just before the war ended. And yet he wrote concerning praying for our enemies. He says, this is the supreme demand. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. Jesus does not promise that when we bless our enemies and do good to them, they will not despitefully use and persecute us. They certainly will. But not even that can hurt or overcome us so long as we pray for them. For if we pray for them, we are taking their distress and poverty, their guilt and perdition upon ourselves, and pleading to God for them. We are doing vicariously for them what they cannot do for themselves. Every insult they utter only serves to bind us more closely to God and them. Their persecution of us only serves to bring them nearer to reconciliation with God and to further the triumphs of love. There is that tension. I am not to retaliate. I am not to seek revenge. And I am to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. But there is evil in this world. Jesus will say, do not resist him who is evil. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And I'm troubled, and I admit we're all struggling with this. Patsy and I occasionally will have conversations about if somebody were to break into our home, would we use deadly force? And I say, yes. I don't know that I would hesitate. And Patsy says, no. There's, there's nothing that would bring me to do that. So we're a little bit at odds on that. Maybe I'm, I'm wrong because I, I read God's word here and I see, do not take your own revenge. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I look at a man like Bonhoeffer who's saying, pray for your enemies. That's the way that God wants to, to work in their lives. We act vicariously on their behalf when we pray for our enemies. And yet he tried himself to assassinate Hitler. It's a hard thing. I know that, that when it comes to defending ourselves, maybe that's where the line is drawn. And it comes to defending others, maybe that's where God gives us freedom. I'm wrestling with it still. I know that that when a child is young, we as parents have taught our children there are certain things that other people have no right to do to you. And we tell them, they cannot touch you inappropriately. You say no. And we're telling them, resist him who is evil. And yet Jesus says, do not resist him who is evil. And there are many other verses. Take up the armor of God that you might be able to resist the evil one and to stand firm in your faith against him. In James, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, if I can resist the devil, why can't I resist an evil person? There's no one more evil than the devil. There's one aspect of that passage in Matthew 5 about turning the other cheek. Do not resist him who is evil, but rather turn the other cheek. And Matthew gets very specific about it and says, if somebody, if somebody strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. And many people think that's the clue to what Jesus is saying. 
because it is not possible to ball up your fist and to stand in front of a man and hit him on the right cheek. You're going to hit him on the left cheek. The way you're going to hit a man on the right cheek is to backhand him. And that's not an assault. That's an insult. And so maybe Jesus is saying, when somebody evil is insulting you, and mocking you, and laughing at you, demeaning you, just take it. Just take it. And maybe he's not saying, if it's an assault, that you cannot resist him. I draw the line there personally. And again, I think there's, in my mind, a distinction between resisting and taking revenge and retaliating. I think, you know, most of us as Christians would not hesitate if our home were being broken into to call the police, call 911, and say, come and help me. If there was no 911 and there were neighbors nearby, we'd call for them and say, come and help me. And I think about that. Why would I ask a police officer to defend me, to risk his life for me, if I'm not willing to defend myself? Is that reasonable to ask another person to risk his life in defense of me, if I'm not willing to resist the evildoer myself? So I'm I'm torn here. But I know clearly God is saying here, that I am not to become the evildoer. I am not to let my heart be defeated and torn up and taken away from Christ and His love when I am treated wrongly by enemies. I can't. He says here, loving our enemies is not retaliatory, it is redemptive. Loving our enemies is not seeking right consequences to wrong. It is seeking right relationships. So I don't know that he's saying here in this passage that you cannot put your hands up to block the blow. But he is saying seek right relationships. Seek redemption, not retaliation. Loving our enemies is not taking our own revenge. It is leaving room for God. And look specifically at what he says about God. Verse 19, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There's a couple things about that. I have found in my experience that as I truly pray for people, truly pray for my enemy, I don't want them to experience the wrath of God. I don't want them to come under God's vengeance because my heart turns as I truly pray for my enemy. And maybe that's why so many times in Scripture, Proverbs 24 is one verse where it says, do not rejoice over your enemy because if we love our enemy and the enemies are who we were when Christ died for us, if we love our enemy, you don't want to see him suffer. And if that begins to happen, and that's one way I know I have been defeated by the, by the evil. When I see my enemy suffer, and there's anything in me that rejoices, I have already been defeated by the evil. God doesn't rejoice over his enemies. He came in salvation for his enemies. Loving our enemies is not taking our own revenge, is leaving room 
for God to act. But make clear, make no mistake, he is a God of wrath and a God of vengeance. Leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. I have a friend that, that wrote me recently and asked me if I knew anything about three different authors. And I didn't. Um, two of the three I'd never heard of. And so I, I just, great thing about the Internet, you can find out lots of stuff. And so I Googled the guy's name, and his blog came up. And, and I start reading through his blog. And he, and he speaks about he's just a, you know, a kind of a new upcoming author theologian. And, um, and he speaks on his blog about why, what crucified Jesus. And he says that what crucified Jesus was the wrath of man, not the wrath of God. That the wrath of God was not involved in the, in the death of Jesus, not involved. Now, the reason he comes to that position, I'm sure, is because he's part of a school of, of, of evangelicals, they call themselves, who believe that God is a God of love and not a God of wrath. Quite frankly, that's one of the problems I have with the book Shack, the Shack, because they're, that they're, the God in the Shack is not a God of wrath. He is only a God of love. But as you've heard before, the opposite of love is not wrath. The opposite of love is indifference. And God is not a God of indifference. He is indifferent toward no one. But He is a God of love. And it is not a contradiction to love and to hate. It is not a contradiction in the mind of God. He both loves and He hates. Because He loves, He hates. He hates evil. Absolutely. So my God who he just spoke about love in the preceding part of the chapter, is also a God of wrath and a God of vengeance. And when we love our enemies, even though there's something in us that we can take peace at and say, and this is how one of the, reasons, one of the ways that Paul comforted the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He said, Beloved, I know what you're suffering, but take heart. There is a God who will bring retribution. And so that is a measure of comfort that Paul holds out for Christians when we are suffering unjustly. There is a God, and a day of retribution is coming. But at the same time, when we are praying for our enemies, we are not longing for retribution or for vengeance. We had a man with us just recently up at his hill for Thanksgiving conference. He's from Turkey. And he and his wife have both um, had had attempts against their lives since they've become Christians. His wife became a Christian while she was studying in London. And the father was back in Turkey, I believe it was. And the father, being a man of prominence and wealth, he hired assassins to go to London and kill his daughter. And she was stabbed in the neck and, and still has the scars on her neck. And the, the husband, he comes to Christ and becomes a, a pastor, an evangelist, and, and was arrested several different times and was tortured during those arrests. And, and he says how, how, how God's grace was so powerful in his life that, that as the torturers were laughing as they tortured him, he was laughing in the joy of God. And he says, Charlie, it's, it's hard to explain. 
that both things were going on. They were laughing in evil, and I was laughing in the love and joy of the Lord. It says, God gave me a great love for my enemies, even as they tortured me. That is not normal. That is a supernatural response. And that's what Paul's talking about here. There is no way I can just decide from now on I'm going to love my enemies and I'm not going to retaliate. It is a supernatural response to a life presented to Christ. And every time that enemy comes back up and confronts us, again, I have to go back to the Lord and say, God, I am not adequate for this. Everything in me wants to retaliate. And I'm good at retaliation. Lord Jesus, keep me silent. And not just the negative of keep me silent, but God, give me the grace to move toward this person. To seek not retaliation, but redemption. Reconciliation. Not to be overcome by the evil, but to overcome it with good. Verse 20, if your enemy is hungry... We don't rejoice over him. We don't say he's getting his just dues. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If, his, if he is thirsty, give him a drink. And what he's doing is sometimes God gives us advantage over our enemies. I've seen it happen. You know, you, you can't be in a position in a Bible school where, you know, you've got all these college-age people there and occasionally they mess up and, and, and if, as God brings conviction, there's been different times they've come into my office and, man, they're broken and they're confessing their sin, what they've done, whatever. And I tell you, it, it is the easiest thing in the world to forgive when a person is broken. And if my heart, when a person is truly broken, and their sin is against me personally, if my heart still wants retaliation, there is something desperately wrong with me. That's not the way God is toward us. And there is no grounds in Christ to be that way towards another person. There is no person who ever comes to God in brokenness and seeking forgiveness who is turned away. They all meet with immediate, unqualified acceptance. Always. And it should be the same with us. So when God gives us opportunity, advantage over our enemies, when he puts us in a place of power over them, because sometimes he turns the tables. It is not to dominate them or to subjugate them, but it is to liberate and to bless. I recently had a relationship that's been, been tumultuous at best for over 20 years. It's been a long time. I honestly didn't have a lot of hope that it was ever going to change. And I recently, in that relationship, that person just sat before me in tears and said, please forgive me. What can I do to make restitution? Now, I can sit there and go, well, we've got 20 years of history we need to revisit. And I've, and I've got a good memory. We could have been there a long time. But nothing could have been more anti-Christ than to say, let me, let's talk about these things. But in the spirit of Christ, I forgive you. Please forgive me. Where I have wronged you, forgive me. 
and I forgive you. There is nothing to talk about. You owe me nothing. Thank you. Let's move forward. And we have. It's been really good. God sometimes gives us advantage over our enemies. And it is not so that we can get even. So that God can reconcile. And he does that as we repay the evil with good. You will be heaping coals of fire upon their head. You know, nobody knows what that means. I've looked at lots of commentaries on it, and the honest ones will all say, nobody knows what this means. But in the spirit of the passage, it can't mean you're really going to grind them down into dust by doing good to them. That's not about retaliation. It's about doing what is good. So one thought is that people, when they came to visit you, and if they stayed late in the evening and they had to go back to their, to their tents, they wouldn't have, their fire maybe had burned out. And so you'd send them back with, with coals so that they could start their own fire. That's a pretty good idea. Another thought is that when the penitent, a person is already repentant and, and broken over their sin, that there was an Egyptian um, um, cultural thing that they would do where a person, to show his penitence, would walk around with coals in a pan on his head. And so he's expressing, like the Jews would with sackcloth and ashes, the Egyptians would with coals on their head, expressing their, their repentance. And so maybe it's a reference to that, some say. That, that he's already penitent, and by you doing good to him, it only allows him to continue in that spirit that God's bringing about in his life. But once he comes to a place of, 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 of seeking for an apology, and you take his weakness and beat him with it, then you're going to undo the very thing that God has done in his life. So this is not a time to beat on a person. He's finally come around and said, please forgive me. And you go, well, that's just a little hard to do. Maybe we're going to have to take some time to think about this and talk about it. It's easy for you to say you're, you're sorry, but I've got to live with what you've done. And we undo what God has done. And God says, this is a time to be good. This is not a time to say, we need to talk about this some more. It is a time to be good. And do not overcome evil with good. Do not overcome, be overcome with evil. The masterpiece of love, as one person has said, is that the enemy is not killed, he is converted. The enemy is not killed, he is converted. And it can only happen as we take the position of Christ. Humility and meekness, not returning insult for insult, being silent, giving a blessing instead, returning good for evil. And in the grace and goodness of God, maybe the enemy is converted. Maybe he's not. God's business. My business is to come to God, thank Him, entrust my soul to Him who cares for me, and know that Many times I've had to see that what this thing hates me for, what this person hates me for, what he is accusing me of, may not even be true in my life. So what? That doesn't mean God has not raised up this person in order to, to teach me, to correct me, 
to bring me into a greater um, measure of humility. Remember when David was running from Absalom and he's trying to make his way down the Jordan River and here comes Shimei. And Shimei is throwing dirts, dirt and rocks at David and cursing him like he's a dog. But it's what he said that was so interesting. He, said, he accuses David of trying to, to extinguish the house of Saul, the Benjamites. And Shimei himself was a Benjamite. Nothing could have been further from the truth. David had gone out of his way to find any descendant of Saul and any descendant of Jonathan and to do good to those men. It was an absolute lie. And yet David, when his men wanted to kill Shimei, he says, leave him alone. How do I know that God has not sent this man here today? Sometimes the enemy is somebody that God just allows to come into our life, and we know everything that they're saying is absolutely wrong. There is not always a grain of truth in every criticism. That's a lie. Sometimes it is nothing but 100% unadulterated lie, as in the case of David and Shimei. And that's when it's really tough to swallow. Because again, our sense of justice raises its head, and we can't respond as we'd like. And we know it's absolutely wrong, and yet God is sovereign. And he may be allowing this very thing to happen because there's something else that God wants to address in my life. Maybe that spirit of self-vindication. And God saying, you will learn of Jesus. You will learn of me. Entrust yourself to me. And allow me to be supernatural in your life. It is, it is good and right to say it is an enemy and it is evil and it is wrong. There's nothing wrong with admitting those things. We don't gloss it over. But it is also the supernatural life of Christ expressed in us when we love our enemies and we do good for those who hate us. Let me close us in prayer.